What's up, bingers? My guest today makes up half of the dynamic duo who host and produce the Affirmative Murder podcast. Affirmative Murder focuses on crimes that involve minority victims. They give a voice to the forgotten, and he's here to tell you all about it. Please welcome my guest and friend, Alvin Williams. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So what is up, Alvin? Not much, man. You know, just living life, man. <laughs> Trying not to burn up in this heat, you know. <laughs> what happened to your co? Now you told me. So this was originally going to be you and your your co-host Fran. Yes, was gonna was gonna join us. Yes, uh, and you said Fran had to work late. Yes, Fran is a mailman. Right. I said my understanding is a mailman. Mailman work late. Yeah, man. Uh, my my personal uh, mailman had a conniption on my porch like a week ago. He's like. There's a mail. It just keeps coming, and everybody keeps going on vacation. I was like, oh, "Yeah, man, cool. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's all good." So yeah, they're they're uh, flooded, or people are quitting, or don't want to come back to work, or something. So he told me he would let me know. He knew by 10 a.m. He was like, "Yeah, man, it's going to be an overtime day." So I was like, okay. "What is that? Like, what does that look like?" He's is he like a walk around mailman? Is he just yeah. like, man, the bag is heavy today? Yeah. So it's going to be a while. Yes. Something, yeah, basically that, and then also if he, he has to pick up other people's routes if they didn't come uh-huh. to work. So I oh, think it's gotcha. a combination of those two things. Now, but does he really? I, I'm, I'm, we're gonna have to do this again sometime when he could be on, or I'm gonna have to have Absolutely. Fran on so yeah. I can so I can hear from him too. Because I'm because honestly, the only thing I cared about in talking to you guys was the mailman thing. Um, I, <laughs> Damn, I don't care oh, really shit. about any well, of this yeah. other stuff. <laughs> Damn, I mean, I know some secondhand stuff, man. I can I can I can do my best for sure. You know, I know that they wear blue shorts, and I think that they're like fifty percent polyester. That's about all I got. That's all you got. Fifty percent polyester, yeah. blue shorts. He's been doing that for a long time. I take it. Yeah, about six years now. Yeah, six years. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so I, I also want to point out because. So, I find that since I do an interview show that I don't have much time ever to like tell the audience anything that's going on because I'm always talking to someone else. Sure. So if you wouldn't mind sitting here uh, quietly, of course. Of course. uh, (laughs) Do you want better? I'll put myself on mute. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just joking. I'm just, I'm just joking. (laughs) I just want to let the listeners know so that we have, we have an addition to the the team uh, and she is right now, right now she is white letters uh, on our screen because she's watching our zoom to make sure I'm doing my job properly. (laughs) There she is. (laughs) Uh, uh, and, and we can hear her, but you unfortunately can't li- the listener. Uh, but, uh, Erica Cantor is our new production manager for true crime binge, uh, which is a fancy word for, she does everything that makes the show happen. So all I have to do is talk. She's smiling right now. <laughs> she, she, well, no, she follows, <laughs> she follows directions very well. I was waiting for her to reply, even though it's not going on the recording. And as you can see, that's why she's the production manager, because she didn't say anything knowing that you couldn't hear her. Um, but but, but she, she's, she's in the room creepily watching, watching Alvin and I have our conversation. Uh, so I just wanted to give Erica a little shout out. She's, uh, she's taken on this role. Where it, she's just getting her feet wet. And, and I want to show you this, Alvin. So I, I give myself notes before every, time, before every time I do one of these interviews. Okay. I know a little bit about the host. 
a little bit about the case we're going to talk about, enough that I can ask some smart questions and let you be, you know, do all the heavy lifting. And so these are my notes, my notes for this episode. Diligent. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole page of one of these tiny, like, half-size yellow legal pads uh, of information. That's what I know about what we're going to talk about today. And so yeah. part of what Erica's going to be doing <laughs> is some show prep for me. And she said, well, should take a little stab at it. And this happened in 30 minutes before we recorded. She's like, well, let me, let me do something real quick. And, and this is what Erica gave me in, in 30 minutes uh, for, oh, wow. for, for show prep. Oh, it's like double spaced and everything. Double spaced, yeah. typed neatly, outlined. There's A's, there's B's, there's Roman numerals on it. Uh, it's got all the information that I need. So uh, that's the kind of thing. So Erica's going to do kind of our scheduling and, and some show prep stuff and, and uh, pretty much everything. She'll just be the, she'll be the boss of True Crime Binge. I'm impressed just off of her notes. I mean, you held up like a comic note, notepad that like a, right. <laughs> like that, a prop. It looked like a prop that you see in a TV show. Right. And she did that in 30 minutes. So, yeah, wow. it was it was it was like so we're recording this at 6 p.m. And at like five o'clock, she's like, anything else? I'm like, oh, if you want to take a stab at doing this, she's like, well, I'm on my way home from work, but I'll try it real quick. And boom, that's what we got. Incredible. You know, we got the we got the right person for the job. And now, Erica, you are have to shut your camera off. So you don't do, you're better looking than both of us. And it's distracting. Very much there so. we go. <laughs> Uh, so Alvin, uh, I also want to, another quick shout out to uh, another guy that has uh, joined the team, a guy named John Hayes, longtime listener. Uh, that you guys notice every episode we have um, artwork for each episode, which is something I usually do. Which eats, I'm not good at Photoshop; it eats up half a day sometimes because I don't know how to work it. Uh, so John is now taking that over, so all the episode artwork will be done by the amazing Mr. John Hayes. It's like and a dele- the, the delegation that you're doing, man. It's like I just learned how to do all this. <laughs> <laughs> like, like to delegate. Yeah. It was, I literally, I had a temper tantrum, Alvin, last week because I was just like overwhelmed by all this stuff going on with truth and justice and true crime binge. And I've always got all these people saying, you know, we can help, we can help. And I'm like, no, you can't help. You couldn't possibly do my job the way I do it. <laughs> and finally, I was like, okay, forget it. I'm going to put up a post and see, is anybody interested in doing some of this stuff for these two jobs? And I got like, hun- people are, people are amazing. I got hundreds of, messages from people like i'll help you do this i'll help you research cases i'll do this i'll do this uh, so so when i'm learning to you know, learn learning to let go a bit huh <laughs> yeah let go yeah and er- erica's already proved to me she can do my job better than than i can yeah i mean she made you done. look like a fool with those notes man i mean yeah if everybody that you delegate to blows you out of the water it'll be easier for you to let the reins go even more you're like oh there's like people out here that specialize in this thing i've been taking on my own plate <laughs> Right, right, and you know, I think my mistake was that I acknowledged them because I could have just kept rolling, and the show just gets better, and there's people think that I did it. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, Mike, cut all that out. Cut all that out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Alvin, let me talk about you a little bit. So, I met you at CrimeCon, yes, uh, on on Podcast Row, uh, and I wore a red shirt today to to try to match your podcast, and then you didn't, (sighs) and now I feel silly. Yeah, man i I didn't know that. Uh, there was going to be a video component to this. So, I mean, you're, you're lucky I have a shirt on, you know? So I, I really, I've really put no thought into, uh, you know, coordination. I also have pants on, even though I don't need to have them be visually seen. I just want people to know that I do have them on. Oh, see, now I didn't wear pants. I thought we were doing no <laughs> pants, red shirt. Yeah, we're just not on the same page, man. Don't delegate right. to me, Bob. I'm not, I'm clearly not on the same. I, I can't, I can't get the things done for you. <laughs> so, so. Uh, Alvin and I, we met, we met on podcast row. We immediately became bosom buddies. Yes. Uh, and we did a big fan meetup at one of the bars down. Did you see that there was like a horrible shooting right outside that bar? Like the next night? 
No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. Good. I mean, listen, I had a great time in Austin, but that street of Sixth Street is. Like where I think if there's ever a purge, that'll be like ground zero for the purge. Yeah. I mean, this was yeah. like a bar night. There's there's uh, barricades up and cones and people, mm-hmm. uh, cops on horses and thousands of people. It looked like a festival. I thought yeah, it, was it was South crazy. by Southwest like that night, but that was just like a bar crawl. Yeah. Were you were you there? We were headed to the bar right as they were shutting the streets down. Oh, I didn't. I would, like yeah, the they purge. were already shut down. Yeah, they were already shut down when we got there. So there's cars parked there and there was there, there were cops like slowly driving down the road after they put the cones up with their megaphones from their cars, like shouted, like, like going, if your car is not moved in one minute, your car will be towed. The oh street God. is closed. And it was like, it was just kind of an eerie feeling. Yeah. And they were like kicking everybody out of there. And all that for, uh, for some bachelorette parties. <laughs> like, I, I mean, guess, like, yeah. <laughs> it was not like a, it's not like a serious thing that occurred after that happened. Like, I yeah, mean, people just threw up on the streets and like, we're I saw a, two people yeah. throw up on the street. I saw a naked man on the street, like butt ass naked, rolling yeah. around on the street. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, it was like it was like the next day or a day after that, there was right wow. outside of the Jackalope, there was uh, there was a like a mass shooting outside of the, in the street. Wow, so, no, I had, I didn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. Wow, yep, yep. but but it didn't happen when we were there. We just had fun when we yeah, were. Yeah, I had there. a great time. I danced. <laughs> I had a ball. It's weird that you say that because I had so much fun. That we we had one more day left, and I was like, "Yeah, let's we're gonna go back out again." That like the next right. night, and uh, like f- fortunately, now that you're telling me this, we had recorded so much like footage and things uh, at CrimeCon. I was like, "I'm just gonna stay in and edit so that I can get ahead on some stuff." So we just stayed in that night, and thankfully, I saw we you guys did. recording recording while you were there. That was smart. I saw like on your on your feed too on the podcast. You used a lot of like live stuff there. Um, I noticed that you didn't ask me to interview while we were there, and my feelings weren't hurt really at all very much. <laughs> Bob, if you're if you're going to tell the story, tell the whole story. You're one of several people at this thing that's moving and grooving. There's people with uh, earpieces coming over and whisking you away to go do other things. <laughs> Don't make it out like I, <laughs> I, I, I cast you away. I could barely. I, I was like, I, I met you for two seconds. Like, I'm Bob. Nice to meet you. I heard about you. All right. Uh, I'm being whisked away now. Security's coming. So it was like, right. you know, <laughs> you, you, you were moving and grooving at that thing, man. I was. It was, it was a busy week, but uh, <laughs> it was fun. Then you came down to the, to the, um, uh, the fan meetup. We hung out. We did a little dance and a little drink in there. Great time. Um, arranged that. I have, I still, I, I'm terrible with names and I have not for one second forgotten your names because the first time I met you, 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 you told me to remember your names uh, of the Affirmative Murder podcast that it's Alvin, like Alvin and the Chipmunks. And then Fran, like Fran Dresser. Like Fran Dresser, yeah. That's what he was named after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that is an fan. interesting name. Is it short for something? It's, it's an short interesting for, nail for a man. It's short for Francel. That doesn't really help uh, no. in a way. <laughs> like, so that it's still like an ambiguous, it's not like a, you know, a John, you know. Um, right. I think it's French. Um, and that's all I got. But, you know, we call him, we call him Fran for short. And... I like to do the little joke about the Fran Drescher thing. He does not like it at all, and that <laughs> makes me do it more. For it. No. Yeah, I, yeah, I like to. That makes me do it more. So you right. Know. <laughs> right. So, so you guys have the Affirmative Murder podcast, which I've started listening to in the last couple of weeks since we met. I'm just picking up episodes here and there, and, and awesome. I really enjoy. It. I like your guys' style. It's funny. You, you've kind of uh, listed as it's it's a it's a true crime slash comedy podcast. Do you, either yeah. you have any background in comedy, or you're just funny? Because the two of you are funny. Um, yeah, I, I used to do stand up until I realized if I wanted to go any further, I'd have to like get in my car and go to Poughkeepsie, New York and, you know, mm-hmm. Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania and things like that to really grind. 
And then right. I found out that you can, I found out about podcasting and I was like, that sounds cool, but I didn't have a subject. And then when I really got into podcasting, I uh, found out about true crime podcasts and I was, and uh, we started listening to like my favorite murder and, and uh, other podcasts that were kind of dominating the space at that time. And I really liked their format because it was, I always like to tell people I, I, off the bat, as a matter of fact, comedy is like a defense mechanism for me because I never want somebody to come to me and go, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, no, I, I don't. I'm doing the best I can, man. I, I'm just, right. a, I'm just, a, I'm just a clown. Like I'm just a clown trying to, you know, shed some light on some stories. So, um, but Fran, no, Fran's just, uh, just a guy that's been funny, and we've been friends since we're like we were like twelve. But as far as, uh, you know, getting on a stage or something like that, he's frightful. I tried to get him to do st- um, karaoke while we were in Austin. He refused. Refused to do it. Yeah. Well, it's just too bad. You know, it's. The, how long did you do uh, stand up for? I, you know, I took a stab at it last year. I did my first ever open mic and uh, killed, and uh, never, never going back up again because I'm just going to go out on that high note. But man, that's a that's not only a, a tough uh, a tough thing to do, but man, it's a t- I've, I've I've read a lot about it because I'm I'm a big comedy fan. Yeah, same. And and it's a tough business to get into. Did you have aspirations to like make a career in comedy? I had aspir. Well, it's it's like a. So I had aspirations of being a writer. Okay. Every, every, every once I, I'm very much a person that's like once I hit. This is the one like podcasting is the first thing that I ever hit a wall on, and I was like, you can like I'm gonna take this hammer, I'm gonna bang through this wall because I wanted to be a writer, and then I found out like we live in Baltimore, so I was like. I'm not going to move to New York, man. I'm really got roots set up here and mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, I'm not going to commute or I just felt like there was, you know, this was before the, you know, the internet kind of took over and you can do anything right. just online. You don't have to go to New York or LA. You don't have to go. I still obviously there's more opportunities there, but um I wanted to be a writer and then I was like, "Well, I like being funny." So I just took a, a stab at stand up. I did a couple of open mics and then um I won an open mic competition and then I did it for another year or so after that, but then I realized I was basically just going to places and doing 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And I was also making sure that I killed. Right. Which Put a you lot of work into it. Yeah. Like, well, not, not, no, the opposite. I was making okay. sure that I kept it as simple as possible. Okay. Like, ba, 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 ba. They're going to laugh here. And if you, uh-huh. if you keep your comedy simple enough, you know when people are going to, even like you're writing it in a basement, you're like, this will get a, a good laugh. And uh-huh. so you get the endorphins from that, but you're never, I never challenged myself to try to bomb, which they say you should, you need to bomb more than you kill to really mm-hmm. become a true. St- so I don't even consider myself a stand up because I never bombed. I always okay. made sure I came up like, yeah, man, I, this happened when I lost my virginity. <sighs> like I just knew the cheap laughs. I just played the cheap laughs. And right. then I knew that I didn't want to really do the grind of going out of a place where I could ask 10 of my friends to come and watch me. And so I have some built-in laughs already, you know? Right. So once I knew that I didn't want to do the grind of it, I stopped doing it altogether. So what do you do? I mean, other than the podcast, what, what did you do for a job leading up into the podcast? And do you do, you do any, any, any uh, day job now? Yes, I did and, and have been for the last 10 years. I've been a longshoreman. So of, just for your listeners, I did not say lawn Sherman. People think that I say that. I'm saying that when I say it. And I don't even, that's not a thing either, but people don't know what a long, for people who don't know what a long Sherman is, long, like uh, uh, the length of something and a Sherman. So when you see those ships with containers on them floating out in the ocean, the massive freight ships, those eventually have to come into a port and they have to be unloaded, whether that's the containers, there's cars on them, farm equipment. Uh, they come into our port here in Baltimore and my union unloads those ships. Oh, wow. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years. Aren't those longshoremen, those are the guys that do all the cussing, right? <laughs> Some of them, yeah, but that, not me. 
Not you. I'm a well, God fearing man, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear people say that you swear you sound like, like a longshoreman is the only time I've ever heard yes. that, that term before. Well, it's very, one of those very old worldy jobs. Like it's been a job in the, since like the country started, you know, it's a hundreds mm-hmm. of years old. So it's like a salty seaman kind of job, you know? So people, right. when they want to talk about blue collar, it's construction worker, longshoreman, those kind of jobs for sure. Right. So are you running like heavy, like those big giant cranes that pick up those oh, yeah. containers? That's what you do? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't work the cranes, but they'll put the, the crane will put those boxes on a truck and I'll drive that truck out to be, have that box be stacked somewhere. That's my role. I'm more of like a driver. Okay. You ever, you ever see any like horrible uh, accidents with them moving those big crates around? Oh yeah, man. I mean, you know, people work around the clock. And then also when you see those, you know, those trucks that have you know, uh, cars on the truck, which are crazy, you know, like they're taking them to a dealership. So they're stacked on top of each other. They come to ports to get those cars. So they're working around the clock. So people will, you know, do speed and, you know, cocaine to work around the clock and get the jobs done. So there's people falling asleep all the time. We had to put hours caps with our union because there was guys trying to work as many hours as they could to make as much money as they could. And I saw a guy blow through a a four-way intersection, but these aren't cars. These are massive trucks with you know, eight ton boxes on the back of them with all kind of stuff in them and right. just blew through a, a four way intersection with, uh, with, you know, so through the stop sign and hit a, 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 a tall tower of containers that were stacked and he just fell asleep. He, he had just fallen asleep. He was working too long. Thankfully, he wasn't badly hurt, but the ambulance had to come and get him. Sure. Uh, so, so you and Alvin, you said you were old, your friends since you were kids. Yeah, me and Fran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and me and yeah, I'm Alvin. Me and Fran have been friends since we were 12 years old. Yeah, um, it's it's been a long it's been a long journey, but I've kept him, uh, you know, out of trouble the best that I can, and he's done the same for me. And here we are now, uh, almost 30 years old. Almost 30. That's how God, you guys suck. Yeah, I'm a baby. Almost man. 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so and you you start affirmative murder back in what 2017. Yeah, I, I I'm gonna go ahead. I, I'm gonna tell myself again. I just I just took a quick glance at Erica's notes so that I could sound sharp. <laughs> at, when I said uh, that. Yeah. It was, he started. 20. If I remember, it was 2017. It's right there in my notes. But nice I'm just job, popping Erica. it out of my brain, pulling it out of the <laughs> right. the neurons. Uh, 2017, right? <laughs> yeah. So what does that conversation sound like? You because you know 2017 the, the true crime space is is booming. Not quite like it is now. Yes. Uh, but but you did you just whose idea was it to start the podcast? Sound like maybe it was yours. It, like how did that conversation <laughs> go for you guys to start the show? Bob, listen, we're a team, so I would never want to take all the credit. But yeah, no, I totally t- it was all my idea. All the the, everything all you, was my right? idea. Yeah, the name and everything. Um, so what happened was, like I said, we we were listening to podcasts. We really, um, I was I was listening to more true crime podcasts than than Fram was, and we would. So I got him into true crime podcasts, and then he started listening to ones on his own. And then we trade back and forth, and we right. really both got into my favorite murder. And like I said, typical the typical format for a true crime podcast which is fantastic is very much like procedural and people making scripts and there's background music and a very serious tone and when i found out that you could like sound like you're at a tgi fridays and talk about true crime which is how you talk about it when you're not on a microphone you know like you're oh my god you see this story oh it's crazy and then football basketball you're just like your brain's just you know firing Mm -hmm. things off and when they kind of were the blueprint and i was like hey man do you want to just like start a, a true crime podcast? And then he was like, you know, for anybody who's listened to our podcast, Fran is very much like, yeah, oh, sure. 
you know, and then that, it was like, yeah. So, and then that was the inception. And then um, the reason that we uh, came up with the podcast in the format that we did is because, again, watch, uh, listening to My Favorite Murder, Karen or Georgia had a story that they felt like they didn't really feel comfortable speculating because it involved a black woman. And so mm-hmm. they were like, you know, we don't want to come off offensive. And I was like, oh, well, that's no reason that you, you shouldn't be able to talk about something. Like, I don't feel, you know, hindered to talk about speculating about that story or really talking about the climate of the neighborhood or policing or whatever the thing was that they were hesitant to do. I was like, we, we could do that. There's no reason that if somebody's mm-hmm. uncomfortable, it, it shouldn't exist in the space. And because the space is really dominated by women. And, and white women spe- especially it seems like if there was nobody there that felt comfortable to bur- uh, bur- breach certain topics then they just weren't going to get discussed so that's where we took on the format that we did early on and really filled that void and to be clear so everybody i know you guys are just listening and can't see this but but um alvin is a white woman himself yes uh, which is why and he proud like he could yeah could tackle this segment of uh of true crime very much so it, it yeah. felt like my voice was needed in a time like this <laughs> yeah uh but but no you know it, it's it's interesting and it's maybe one of those uncomfortable topics but you know like what all the true crime conventions i've been to and you know walking through podcast row like for you and and fran as black true crime podcasters it's that's not that you you guys really stand out it's it's a rarity did you ever feel any any, I don't know what the word is, whether it's, it's it's pressure or or any discomfort in in getting into the space, or were you just opened with welcomed with open arms? These guys that really got outside the norm, where these two two black guys come into the space that's dominated by white women, as you said. Yeah, I would say it's fifty fifty. Definitely, in my mind, you know, I, I like to you know read marketing uh, books and you know listen to people about how to market a product and things like that. So I knew that. We have something different. Mm-hmm. So I felt good. Uh, like just, just objectively, if you look at the space, I was like, well, we're definitely different. Right. But is that good or bad? Early on, it was like, I don't know. But then when we started getting, we got love from a lot of like really cool podcasters out of the gate. And then our podcast started to grow and, and develop. And we started getting those. Yeah, it's different. And those type of comments put a battery in our back to go, okay, cool. So, all, so we definitely have a thing that's unique. Now we just need to tighten it up. So like I said, you, you, you emailed me earlier about uh, what we're going to discuss today in an early episode. And I was like, oh my God, the early episodes, like the equipment, the reading style, not knowing <laughs> when to cut out pauses and all that. So I was like, if we keep tightening this up, we have something different. And, you know, uh, we went to our first crime con where we met you and some other really cool people. And uh, at no point at that did I feel uncomfortable. If anything, I felt like, oh, man, like this is we're here representing something. But because, again, I'm a clown, I don't feel any pressure that I don't think I don't feel like people take me serious. Now, uh, again, you get sometimes you get people often for us, we get people that are like, what you do is so important and um i just thank you for that and i'm like yeah man like we just we we talked about the popeye's chicken sandwich for like 15 minutes and then of course we're trying to spread <laughs> we're trying to spread awareness and in, in, of these cases and stuff but it's weird to be a, a guy doing a podcast in your house and then you go to texas and there's people like oh i listen to you and what you guys do is so it, it's needed and so that was jarring but a mm-hmm. pressure i wouldn't say is the word it just it makes me feel like I need to do more with our platform 
because in my mind, before going to CrimeCon, I was like, yeah, man, it'll be fun. Like people just think we're like goofballs who are telling stories that need some attention. But like people aren't looking at us to to be some kind of like beacon of, you know, spreading knowledge or something like that. But, you know, I think that I'm we're going to try to tighten things up a little bit more going forward. Well, you've definitely filled a void, and I and I enjoy your that the style of podcast you have. You know, there's other, I li, you know, surprisingly, most of the podcasts I listen to are comedy podcasts. I don't listen to a lot of true crime. I listen to true crime podcasts because of this, because yeah. of uh, you know, to do this job. You For know, sure. But like what, yours, your guys' show to me is a similar format to like Conan O'Brien has a podcast, and it's just a lot of you know, it's like we're going to shoot the shit for a little while and have a good time. And then we're going to get into a serious topic and then and then close things out from there. And it, I like the format. I like what you guys do. And thank you. You know, I, I just I just sat in. I went to the True Crime Podcast Festival in Kansas City right after uh, CrimeCon in Austin. I stalked you on social media. I saw that you uh, you <laughs> missed your flight or, or the oh flight was delayed. I saw, oh, yeah. I saw that whole debacle. Canceled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I missed. I was I went there to do a live True Crime binge, which I never ended up doing. And then I got Josh Hallmark. Uh, from true crime bullshit to sit in for to to guest host for me which i thought was going to be cool yeah uh, and it was but something was wrong with the audio recording and so <sighs> we don't have it uh so i missed I, I missed that whole thing just a great time all around man <laughs> yeah yeah it was a, it was it was a rough weekend it really was uh but you know one of the things i was able to do when i was there is i sat in on a a panel uh called uh, sensitive topics and true crime like how do we report on things like this and we got into something. So Josh was on the was on the panel with me, and and Josh, for those who don't know, Josh is a gay man, and and so we got into like it, it was uh, th- there was a lot of discomfort that comes from the other panel members and other true crime podcasters. There were a lot of them out there. They're like, when we come into these topics like this, that is from uh you know maybe a marginalized group or something. Like I don't know how to handle this because I am. And I am, and I'm the personally like the pinnacle of privilege, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm like a straight white guy. Like it doesn't get any, any more privilege that. So it's tough to. And you have you know, a beard. You're, you're a beard. You're a beard right, as well. Right. I've been told that. I've, I've been told that I'm a beard. I've also been told that I'm a bear. Uh, by people that if I was, you know, if I was in the space. Yes. Uh, right. But you know, it was, it was just we had a long conversation, and I think, um, gosh darn it, I feel bad for not remembering the name of the podcast that it's going to be on, but it should be released. If their audio worked out um, sometime soon, but we had it, it turned into a really great conversation about that, about how do we handle. It was more centered around, uh, you know, talking about like gay victims or or anything like that, because sure. you know, Josh was on the stage and could give us some of that input. And um, it really is. It's something maybe I didn't realize that it's such a void there that, you know, it, it's it's tough to really dig in. You know, I, I deal with it all the time on Truth and Justice. A lot of our victims are my are, are minorities. Um, but there's there definitely are those times where there's 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 topics that I just I just don't I'm not capable of understanding. So, yeah. And so I lo- love that you guys you guys like came into the space and that is I mean if I understand correctly like the, the whole format of your show is everything you cover is, are all minority victims. For the most part. I mean what I will say is I mean as far as you know serial killers the, you know I, I mean at least you know on a consistent or crazy stories you got to throw a white guy in there from time to time because sometimes you just right. come across something that was just like, hey, this this week, this is a my guy's a white guy this week, you know. <laughs> right. But yeah, <laughs> it just this is this is just too 
I, I, I've been on this for four hours. I, I, I can't pull away, so I got to come talk about this on the podcast. Right. But to piggyback off of what you were saying, I mean, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm a minority. Our podcast tries to focus a, a shine a light on minority cases that might not get a lot of attention. But like, I am also a man, and I have privilege as well. And so sometimes, you know, I had to learn about not, you know, tr- saying sex worker and you know, just these things where I'm not trying to offend women because women run the true crime world. I mean, they they are the target demographic and they are the also the target demographic of a lot of the violence that takes place in the stories that we tell. Right. So as a man, I always am trying to learn and listen to my audience to go, okay, this is this is harsh on a woman's ear or, you know, this I didn't cover this sensitively or anything like that. Same from the LGBTQ community. I'm always trying to learn and pick up things because although I am a minority, I'm not the minority. So there's right. things that I could say that, you know, could offend some people. So I'm always trying to, I always let people know that if I mess up, it's never on purpose. I always right, try to let right. people know that just give me the grace and the space to learn. Cause that's what I am here to do. I'm never here with a, from a place of arrogance. Like I said it the right way get out of my face. Like if, if right, I said it right, wrong, right. please. I mean, but I always encourage people like just do it in a nice way. If just, cause just know that it's not meant maliciously. Right. So, you know, but we live in this culture today where it's like, it's like a gotcha culture mm-hmm. and people want to, if you were wrong, it's like, you're wrong, canceled, shut up. Don't say, you know, it's like, they want you to just, they want to make you look, they want to rub your nose in it. And so I always try to let people know, like, if I say it wrong, it's not on purpose. Please right. just allow me the ability to, to grow and, and teach and teach me. You know, and that was, that was a huge uh, portion of the topics we covered in that panel was, it was exactly that. It, it, I do, dude, I put my foot in my mouth so many times. And it's like you said, I would never. And it was funny because somebody made the comment. Like I was like, I would never say something that would offend someone. And then somebody, you know, from the audience was like, well, hey, you don't want to deal with all the shitty reviews and emails. I was like, honestly, I don't give a shit about shitty reviews and emails. What I don't ever want to do is make someone feel bad, and I don't want to make someone feel less than. And I know that I do. So, you know, one of the examples we talked about on the show is it was actually an early interview of the uh, episode of this show. Is I referred to victims as oh, well, he had homosexual victims, and it's just strictly out of it. I had no idea that that's not the way that you know that that, yeah. that homosexual is not okay really to to say anymore. That, that yeah, and 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 there was a, the the like you said like the grace and understanding about it. In that conversation, you know, Josh is very nice. It was like, you know, we prefer gay. I'm like, awesome. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for letting me know. And, Stored. And yeah. And I've learned that now. And, and yeah. Hopefully I don't forget it. So, yeah, you hope that there's that grace in, in that where, you know, if, if people if people who have been listening to you for, what are you guys, have almost 200 episodes out now? Close to it. Yeah. So you, you've, you've been listening to you for that long. Know that, like, you're not a bad guy and you're never trying to hurt anybody. I hope that that's known. You know, I, I think that I think that like, you know, hardcore day one listeners know that. But then, of course, you get a person who comes in. One of the worst things as a podcaster, you know, of course, for, but for people who don't have a podcast who might not know is it is such it's so it's infuriating, even if it's coming from a space of like defense of a community for or even just the defense of audio quality or whatever for somebody to see that hey i'm on episode we're on one episode 190 Mm -hmm. to go to episode seven and say you said this wrong or you you didn't use the right terminology or anything Mm -hmm. like that it's like look at the timestamp. you know like look at it's from 2018 you know like 
so to come with like vitriol, I understand if you come and, you know, I listened to your early episode, just wanted to let you know if nobody told you this, this right. is how we want to be told. But to come almost like you were on a mission today to go, hey, you messed up. And I want you to know nobody listened to this podcast because three years ago they said this the wrong way. That is like, it's such a, it's infuriating because like you just said, I like to think that I'm a good person. So I would never want to offend somebody on purpose. So the idea that somebody could come at you with that level of energy as if you did, right. I, I, it, it baffles me. But I suppose there are people out there who are out to shock and there, there's, a, there's a lane for that that can blow you up and make you a popular personality to just say the thing that nobody should be saying. But I would hope that people would, you know, just give you the benefit of the doubt, you know. Yeah, That's all I ask. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's got to be a two-way street. And I think it is for, for most of us in the space where it's like, listen, I'm willing to learn if you're willing to help teach me. Absolutely. So I want to roll into, we've been, been going on for a little bit here, but I, I, I do want to get into this case because it's a super interesting one I was not familiar with. Sure. Um, and so as you guys all know, the guest, guest picked the case and, and Alvin wanted to talk about uh, a guy named Jason Thomas Scott, who was uh, also known and kind of uh, framed by the media as the mother-daughter killer. Uh, yes. And he was, he's from near, from Maryland, right? Yeah, from the, yeah, from, from the Maryland area. He actually was maybe 15 minutes away from the middle school that I went to uh, okay. when, when he was doing all of these things. Yeah. So where is, because I, I kept reading everything I was reading about it, it says Prince George's County. And it, it yes. kept saying that as though that is something that I should, like, like duh. It's pretty, but I don't know where that is. Like, where is that in like relation to? Let me in Maryland. I know Baltimore. Where is it yes. related to Baltimore? Well, in relation to Baltimore, and um, it's very far. It's more in relation to DC. Okay, PG so County is right south, right yeah. outside of uh outside of DC. Okay. Uh, if to my knowledge, it's it's one of the more affluent black counties in the in the country. Like you know, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of African American wealth in in Prince George's County. Um, and I believe I, I think. It's closer to Montgomery County, which is also incredible. A lot of politicians live in Montgomery County. So in that kind of up, upward closer to metropolitan D.C. area, but still Maryland because D.C. is not a state, it, a lot of it is either Virginia or Maryland. Okay. And uh, a PG County is in Maryland, technically. Yeah. But it's, I, like, it's like 15 minutes, 20 minutes from D.C. Right. And so, and so, and so this guy, he's got, I'm going to let you kind of give us the beats of the case, but he's you know, he was, he was known to have killed, he was a serial killer. He's killed five people. Two yep. of them were mother daughter, uh, four of them were mother daughter combinations, uh, yes. that he murdered. Uh, and then, and then I read that there was, that's, those were the murders, but there were, what I read was dozens of burglaries, home invasions on top of that. So, uh, you can kind of give us the, give us the backbone of the, of the case. So who is this guy and what did he do? So Jason Thomas, Thomas Scott, uh, has been a story that stuck with me because he was truly the epitome of, you know, we, we're in this space and, you know, we fixate on these little details and we watch all this true crime uh, media and we try to use it to disseminate information. He used that for evil to be a criminal mastermind. I mean, he, he uh, broke into dozens of homes. He sexually assaulted tons of women, took photographs of them while he was in the middle of doing these things, stole a bunch of cars and murdered, murdered uh, five people, including a mother-daughter couple, but he left no fingerprints behind. He, he, left, he bleached the stains out of the carpets. He burned cars. I mean, he, he knew what he was doing, 
And it goes even deeper than that. I mean, he 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 had he he knew how to not get caught uh-huh. because he studied how to not get caught, which makes him so terrifying to me. Yeah, and and he was. Uh, I, I read that he was. He worked for um, UPS. Yeah, the opposition. Like, what's that? The opposition. Uh, we're you we're a USPS uh, household here. Oh, the- <laughs> yes. <laughs> you so among him being a piece of shit, he also <laughs> right, he also worked worked for the, for the enemy delivery yeah. company. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, and, and he used their um their like data system uh, data systems to yes. find out to pick out his victims. Yep. Yes. Very yeah, much it, so. Uh, he would he would he would uh, use that uh, data system to pick his pick his targets and then scope out the home beforehand. Even beyond that, I mean, he when he would go to commit his acts when when he would go to commit murders, any act in general, actually, he had a police scanner with mm-hmm. him, you know, tuned into the police uh, frequency so that he could tell if there was anything going on, which there wasn't because he he had plotted it out so meticulously that he knew he had plenty of time to do what he wanted to do but he was that careful about everything yeah and, and he was now I, I actually looked up some statistics because i thought when i when i saw it because uh jason thomas scott is a black guy he's a black yes. serial killer and i've always heard like that's like a complete outlier it's 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 extremely rare that no. you know all serial killers are 40 year old white men yeah. um but when i looked it up that's really not the case that's a misconception for sure yeah, there's I, a, I read, the, I read yeah. there's like 13 to 22 percent of serial killers are are black. Yeah, and I think that one of the main problems in that is is that they a lot of a lot of the serial killers that we cover are not Jason Thomas Scott. They are sexual deviants who are in an impoverished, drug infested neighborhood mm-hmm. where there's a lot of people on the street that have been forgotten about, or there's nobody looking for them. So if they want to sexually assault women. They can do it by the dozens. Right. There's a there's a serial killer n- named the Grim Sleeper, um, Lonnie Franklin, out in California. They think he might have killed a hundred women, but they were all sex workers, you know. So, right. and then they're you know sex workers of color. So they aren't the eye catching John Benet Ramsey headline that's gonna take the country by storm. You know, they almost kind of you know a lot of detectives show up to the case or show up to the scene of the crime and they maybe write them off as you know. Oh, a hazard of the of the job. You know, mm-hmm. they overdosed, or you know, uh, John killed them. But if you just write that off, if one John killed fifteen women, that's a serial killer, right? So that's a lot of the cases that we get. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no. These guys aren't Buffalo Bill. You know, they're these. They're right. not these mythological people that have been made up in our minds. They're just taking advantage of addiction and you know, uh, b- people being homeless, and then they're able to rack up numbers that are crazy because nobody's looking for their victims well and that's you know it's funny because that that's the same type of deal we talked we talked about with jeffrey dahmer um uh, bob Berdella, the the kansas city butcher in, in their cases like their their victims were were gay men and it was and it was not only i think that especially back then you know that mentality of well man it's a hazard of what you're doing which is very yeah like, so lifestyle ignorant. yeah yeah yes. it's, it's part of their lifestyle but then it was just like they didn't the the police didn't care about the victims, and it seems like that's why I did. I actually did more reading about that than the case when I before because I got down a rabbit hole um, when I was looking into this stuff about the the black serial killers. It's exactly what you said. Like you know, they're 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 killing in impoverished communities, drug addicts, sex workers, 
And they're just, you know, the, the crimes were never even linked together because the investigators didn't care about the victims. It was a yeah. sex worker of, of color, particularly, or, or, you know, a drug addict and in a, and in a bad neighborhood where maybe there's a lot of gang violence anyway. And so they just get, they, they don't, they don't get talked about. They don't get linked yeah. together. And then the media doesn't talk about it. Cause like I said, it's not sexy. It's not John Benet Ramsey. It's not a, a little, a little white girl who's a beauty queen. You know, it was a, uh, you know, uh, it could have been a, a, tr- a transgender sex worker yes. of color on the, living on the streets of Baltimore somewhere. And then they just don't care about, about her. Yeah. Yeah. Very, it's very tragic, but, um, yeah, no, as far as when you talk about, uh, serial killers of color, black, you know, or, or other, it is a misconception, but like I said, some, you know, white guys are not going to go quietly into the night, man. I mean, they're, you know, they, right. they are, they are still out here. You, you, every week you hear some crazy story about mm-hmm. it, you know, you know, um, just people being found in basements and things like that. So it is, but, but the, the idea that no, that it's only white men that are serial killers is a misconception and a dangerous one because it allows, you know, in communities of color, people to walk around with this misconception or this, uh, you know, in this uh, lie walking around thinking, oh, that person died, but they were a sex worker or homeless. So it's not linked together. Mm-hmm. Whereas re- in reality, you could be walking through your neighborhood and 13 sex workers have been murdered and they're all linked together. And there's just one person doing these things. And you don't know that there's a serious, everybody should be on alert. Right. People should be in the house early or being aware of suspicious characters, but they're all just living in this lie. They're like, oh, black people don't do that. That's right. not what we do. So we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Well, and there's also, I think the labels hurt it too. Like you said, there's 13 sex workers that got killed. Does it change the conversation if you say 13 people in your neighborhood Absolutely. were killed? You know, because I think that a lot of times they're looked at as somebody, anybody that, that's, that's involved in any activity that is not, you know, generally accepted uh, by people. They're not even looked at as people. Yes. You know, you know, or, you know, well, I don't have to worry. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But they said there's, yes. there's people getting murdered. I'm a good person, quote, quote unquote, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a rough one. So, so how did he end up, how did he end up getting caught? Because he was so meticulous. He ends up, because I, I know he was, he was active from June of 2008 through March of 2009. And then a few yeah. months later in, in July of that year, he got caught. How did, how did he finally get caught? So, to the 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 summarized story is that uh he he murdered or uh the bodies of Carissa Lofton and Karen Lofton the mother and daughter were found in their home uh police officers had no leads there was no sign of force entry force entry or anything like that and they were kind of left baffled trying to you know figure out what happened uh 6 weeks after that another a, a car was found burned 15 minutes after a car was reported stolen Mm-hmm. It's that very car, and after the you know the uh, the embers were put out, they found two bodies: one in the back seat, one in the trunk of another mother and daughter, uh, the Dewitts, Dolores, and Ebony. In that car, they found some denim, uh, some remnants of some denim, and some leaves from a beech tree that hadn't burned up. And then the case went cold for about three months. Okay. And then after they they so they started from scratch. The detective started from scratch. They put out a twenty five thousand dollar reward and. There was a string of burglaries, or burglaries that happened in the neighborhood, which put them, uh, put Jason Thomas Scott on their radar mm-hmm. because they found out that he was illegally selling guns out of the parking lot of the UPS. So they brought him in to, uh, to do a, 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 I think they call it a profit interview or where they bring him in and they say, hey, 
you tell us what you know, you sign you sign a deal, whatever you tell us can't be used against you. Right. Really but whatever it leads to, if it leads to other people coming in, if they say something that implicates you, that's not immunity of that. Right. And I might have got that word wrong. But anyway, they bring him in for that. And during that interview, he ends up telling them more than they were looking to find out. Okay. You know, they were just looking to find out about the guns. At this point, the ATF got involved, so it became a bigger case. But they just thought he was a small fish who could lead them to bigger criminals. Mm-hmm. But during this interview, he informed them about the burglaries and home invasions, and he and the he mentioned the DeWitt house. Uh-huh. So it placed him in in the neighborhood of where the murders happened. So they knew that they had a suspect on their hands after that, but they had no way of uh, implicating him in the in the murders. But he had mentioned doing the crimes with other accomplices. And that led them to an, another accomplice who also worked at UPS. Uh, his name was uh, Marcus Hunter, right? So Marcus Hunter, they bring Marcus Hunter in for questioning. And what are they, what, what's, that, uh, what's that quote? You know, two, uh, two people can hold a secret if one of them's dead, right? So right, right. really the only reason that Jason Thomas Scott was caught was because his accomplice was caught and and gave up all the information mm-hmm. he informed them that uh jason thomas scott would when they would go do home invasions together so basically first of all he he he, co- he corroborated everything that jason thomas scott said and then he added on that yeah when we would go do home invasions he would bring spare keys with him in case we needed to switch cars so what jason thomas scott would do this adds again to like his his criminal mastery i don't mean to give him a lot of credit but some of the stuff that he did i just couldn't believe he would go and break into a home just and just steal a spare key and then hold on to it and then you know break into a house in the neighborhood a couple of weeks later and then if he needed to that's what happened with the Dewitts. Okay. Uh he he murdered them in their home and then used the spare key of a of a car that he had stolen 15 minutes before to take their bodies out of their home and just, and drive it down the block a bit and then light the car on fire. Now I don't know if that is I, I don't want to give him too much credit, but it's like if you find a burnt up car and the registration is to another person, it's like it almost it muddies the water so much, you know, oh, like, yeah, for you sure. know, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's just like not only is he using somebody else's car, but now that person might be a suspect and the attention's diverted away from you. So that might not have been in his, his purview of what he was thinking, but I, I feel like it was just because of a lot of the things that he was doing. Anyway. Uh, Marcus Hunter mentioned something about a spooky house that they would go to to kind of plan the next move and where they would go break up whatever things that they had gotten from their robberies. They would go split them up at the spooky house. He leads them to the spooky house and, you know, detectives hadn't had had no leads up until this point. And uh, all they had was the denim remnants from the burnt up car and uh, leaves from a beech tree. When they pull up to the house, the spooky house, quote unquote, it was surrounded by beech trees. So they knew they knew that because none of the other houses that where the murders or the burglaries occurred, there was no beech trees anywhere around there. So it's almost like, you know, a glowing red sign saying, yeah, this is this is the house. That's like some CSI if, stuff. Exactly. That's yeah. why the case is just so fascinating to me is that it, it was it was a beech tree leaf that really sealed this guy's fate. So they pull up to the house, they see the beech trees and they go, OK, we got a we got a witness saying this is where they come to break up the, uh, the, the, the treasures from their robberies, these four women were murdered through a home invasion, and there was a beech tree leaf found at one of the scenes of a, of a double homicide. So, boom, we have a case. They bring him in, 
and uh, they wanted to charge him for the murder of the Lofton mother and daughter, but they didn't feel like the case was strong enough because there was no DNA evidence at the scene right. and there were no beech tree leaves. So they just focused on the DeWitts and he, went, he ended up being convicted. He, he took a plea deal and he's serving 85 years in prison currently. Yeah, and interesting, he took an Alfred plea, which is, is, worth, <sighs> is worth noting that um, you know, we hear that term a lot of times in the wrongful conviction space where you know, yes. somebody like the West Memphis Three, you know, they, you know, they took an Alfred plea, which meant that they were allowed to plead guilty and maintain their innocence in order for a deal to get out of prison, which is an abuse of what an Alfred plea is supposed to be. Yeah. The, the actual Alfred plea uh, was from a Supreme Court case, which was used exactly like this. I don't remember the name of the case or even the state it was in, but it was a guy who decided he wanted to plead guilty. And when he went into court and went to plead guilty, he told the judge, he said, I'm, I'm innocent, but I'm pleading guilty. Well, the, the, our criminal justice system doesn't allow you to do that. You're not allowed to plead guilty unless you're guilty. And yes. so the judge, the guy's name was Alfred, uh, his last name, the judge Go allowed figure. him to plead guilty while still saying that he's not guilty. And that that set the precedent uh, that that allowed for an Alfred plea, and that's what uh, what Jason Thomas Scott did was he took an Alfred plea where he he pled guilty, took a deal, and I yes. think the deal was to that they would only charge him for the two murders instead of yes. all five, and he would plead guilty to that, but maintain that he he says he's innocent, but acknowledges that the state has uh, enough put enough of to a case him. together. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's wild because, like, in the case of the West Memphis Three, the West Memphis Three, that's what uh, that's what got them out, right? Right. The plea that they took. So it's almost like you, they just wanted to keep the conviction on the books, exactly, and not admit that they were, you know, got it wrong. Yeah. So it's, a, it's crazy how how many ways it can be used because in this case, this guy was definitely guilty. There's no benefit really, other than I guess the death penalty's off the table. Yeah, and in that case, it it freed those guys, but it's just it's very it's a very broad plea. Well, it, it, it's it's used. It's been, in my opinion, it's been bastardized by prosecutors to get it. It allows them to save face. So had had the Alfred plea been been not in existence, if there was not a precedent, a legal precedent, I believe the West Memphis Three would be free and exonerated now because they were yes they were working towards presenting the evidence to prove their innocence. But then there's that care, you know, you're in prison for 18 years on death row in Damien's case, and and you're facing years more of appeals that may or may not go your way. And now they have this carrot where the state says, you want to go home today? I can send you home today, yeah. which sounds great. Like you said, it got them out of prison, but it allowed the prosecutor murder, to let yeah. them out of prison and say, we still got it right. They pled guilty. And, and, and what really drives me crazy is somebody who's really, you know, really victim centric and look at any of these cases, including wrongful convictions. Is that it allows the state to not reinvestigate? It, it allows them to not go after the person that actually committed the murder because they have a guilty plea on the book, so they don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, they, so it was it was it was taken from cases like this where someone's like, "I'm willing to take a plea deal, but I'm not willing to say I'm guilty," uh, and that's how it, it, it all. There's a little that, that little bit's extra, listeners, uh, about the <laughs> your little lesson on the Alfred plea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> less I, I took that too. I, I've heard it and I knew the generalness of it, but I didn't know the origins of it. And yeah, it's it's like it's just so it is. It's been bastardized. That's crazy that you know it can be used to keep a conviction on the books. Yep. And then you don't even. And now it's like you said it. The the case stays closed, 
And the person saying I'm innocent, but you can keep the guilty tag on me. But that means that the actual perpetrator of the crime remains free. And you also have no incentive to go out and try to find that because the case is solved. Right. Yeah. And you end up with what you end up with every time is the people that get let out are saying they obviously knew I was innocent. That's why they let me out. I'm innocent, but I still have a, a murder conviction on my record. And the state gets to say, well, they're obviously guilty. They pled guilty. And it just leaves you in this like terminal state of amb- ambiguity where it's just hanging like what really happened out there. Yeah. And that's that's how it, it's a manipulation and bastardization of the Alfred police original origins, uh, which you know they use now to say, I'll tell you what, we'll throw your old conviction out. We'll charge you again. You plead guilty, maintain your innocence and we'll sentence you to time served. And then you go home today and it's over. And it's a hard deal people, to turn down. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people are like, well, how could they do that? You know, why would they do that when they could just fight for the, you hear that a lot in the West Memphis three case from the crowd that think that they're guilty, you know, is, well, if they're really innocent. They'd fight for them. Like, have you ever spent 18 years on death row? It, you know, with a, with a pending execution coming and you've, you've gone through appeal after appeal after appeal and seen how that process looks. And you know that even if it goes your way, you're probably still looking at four or five more years before it's over. Of course yeah. they took it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's very similar to like in a lot of the cases that we do and we cover, especially in wrongful conviction uh, stories, you know, which I'm sure you're familiar with tons of them. People go, well, you know, they pled guilty. So or they they signed a written statement saying that mm-hmm. they did it. But, you know, so they so who who does that if they if they are innocent, you know? Right. And, you know, Illinois just passed a law that says that, you know, detectives can't lie in interrogation rooms to minors. You right. know, they're the only states have done that so far. And Fran brought up a good question when I said this, like, how, well, how do you enforce that? I mean, like, they aren't going to lie on a camera, you know, but I think it was more of like a symbolic gesture. But the idea that um, somebody could have that mentality after we've seen such, you know, prominent cases like the, um, the, new, uh, the case in New York, the, uh, the five, uh, the, Central the, Central Park Park, five. the Central Park Five, yeah. when you can see that laid out in front of you and still go, well, if somebody says that they did it, then that they did it. Why would you admit to doing something that you didn't do? You know, right. so that it like very much like the, you know, why wouldn't you fight it? If you, if you're innocent, why not fight it? It's like, you've never been in those situations. And I hope to never be in those situations where somebody's telling you, we, you know, you're innocent, but somebody's going, we have your ev- DNA evidence. We got a, a solid case open and shut. You're right. going to jail for life. You can take a plea and do 10 years. It's like, huh. <laughs> I guess I guess I'm taking the ten years. You know, right. it's 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 a, it's a crazy place to be in, especially when you're in a position where you have a a public defender with a massive caseload that he's dealing with that tells you like, look, you're going to lose if you go to trial. So you lose and you do life, or you take the deal and you do ten, and you take the deal. But it, you know, it all comes back to exactly what we were talking about a little bit ago. It all comes back to not not being able to truly understand the mentality and the psychology behind being in a situation you've never been in. I, I can I can try to understand, but I'll never know what it's like to be a black man or or someone in the LGBTQ community. So you know I you know, you do your best, but but I think that's the same thing as people sit back from your living room, free eating your dinner, and going. Yeah. Psh, I would never like. Don't say never. Don't ever yeah. say never because you don't know. Wow. And uh, and with that, I think this. So just to to put a button on on things with, and, and you can go to episode forty four of of affirmative murder yes. and and hear the the full story. Uh, you're I've been listening to a lot of your back catalog. Do you still do about two hours of the most episodes? For the most part, yeah, yeah. We you know because you know 
something happens in the world, as I've already stated, the Popeye's chicken sandwich debacle was a big t- uh, <laughs> a cause of conversation on our podcast. So, you know, sometimes we get on tangents and, um, you know, two hours is right around our typical episode length. Right. And, and yeah, so you, if you go back to episode 44, you know, the first hour, you guys are talking a lot about the DMV. Uh, and then uh, after that, we get into a, a really good case discussion on, on this case, the, the Jason Thomas Scott case or the, uh, the mother-daughter killer. So, uh, and like I said, to put a button on that, he, got, he took the Alfred plea, got 85 years for the murders, and then after that was convicted for dozens of burglaries and home invasions, which yeah. tacked on another 100 years. So, oh. so he's, he's, he's sentenced to 185 years in prison. So hopefully he's, he's never getting out of there and to get the whole story, I want you to go check it out. This guy right here, his name is Alvin Williams. The podcast is called affirmative murder. His co-host couldn't be with us today, but, but, uh, Fran Evans, he's a pretty good guy too. Yes. Here in spirit, check them out. I'm quite sure they're going to be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Alvin, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Bob. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.